Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel Dory. And I'm Ian Tullock. How are you doing this week, Rachel? Oh, you know, I'm just a little bit tired, but uh, feeling pretty good overall. You sound terrible, though. Yeah, I sound really, really awful. I've been sick for the last two weeks. I think this is my body's natural response to the last two weeks when it comes to Raptors mania. I still haven't fully recovered from it all. And uh, yeah, I have a messed up throat, a messed up nose, uh, um, phlegm galore. Uh, I had pink eye the other day as like a cherry on top. So yeah, life's just been great for me. I'm doing awesome. That is one of the most disgusting combinations of sicknesses I think I've ever heard. Okay, so we're no longer talking about that. What are we talking about today? (laughs) So uh, the NHL draft happened over the weekend, and we're huge draft nerds. We love the draft, not only because of the exciting young players that are coming into the league, but also because it's where a lot of trades happen, and some of those trades happen for salary cap reasons, which we are going to get into. But I wasn't sure if you wanted to talk about the transactions first or the actual picks that were made during the draft. I'll let you kind of decide that. Yeah, I think we should start on the draft, and uh, for anyone who is paying attention on Twitter over the last couple days, we will be talking about Ian and his kale chips, but we will do that at the end, after we've covered all of the hockey. Kale chips are amazing, by the way. Just just quickly getting that, get, getting in front of that before it becomes an issue. Uh-huh. Okay, so the draft. <laughs> <laughs> um, surprises? Who went too high? Who... Do you think maybe slipped? What like what are your kind of thoughts on just individual players? It's funny. I know a lot of people had a problem with Moritz Sider going sixth overall. They went, whoa, what? This guy? He was never considered a top ten pick. But I love the idea of it because I think Moritz Sider, for a six foot four defenseman, can skate really well. And I think he can make a breakout pass. And he's a right-handed defenseman who's six foot four and can do all those things. Those guys are very rare, so I tend to value that a lot more than other things, and I value right-handed defensemen significantly more than I would a winger or even a left-handed defenseman, so I had him in my top 10, and I don't have a problem at all with Detroit picking him sixth overall. I know it was kind of a shock. No one expected that to happen, but I know Cam Robinson was uh, discussing it with me on the Leafs Geeks podcast. He said, hey, with the tools that this guy has, I wouldn't be shocked if someone fell in love with him in the top 10 and went for it. And apparently Detroit did. So I know that they really liked Michael Rasmussen a few years ago, who was a tall guy who I would argue doesn't have that much skill and probably shouldn't have gone as high as he did. But Maurice Sider, I love his upside. I love his tools. And I like the fact that a team, you know, really went for it with a top 10 pick on him. Maybe you could have got him a bit later, but I've been a huge fan of him and I wanted him to go in the top 10 and he went in the top 10. So I'm pretty stoked. And I know that you've got to be because you're German. So I got to feel that like, you know, you're... Your, your patriotism, your inner German roots are just, you know, I don't know what the German chant is, but you're definitely chanting it right now. Well, it's, it's kind of funny because, like, obviously, when Dreisaitl was drafted, he's literally King Leon over in Germany. And my family is kind of the more, like, I'm into hockey, I've kind of gotten them into hockey. I mean, we're a soccer family first, but as soon as they found out that cider went like sixth overall, I'm going to Germany for Christmas. And a bunch of my family was like, get me Red Wing stuff. And like last time I went over, I brought a bunch of Oilers stuff. What about Dominic Bach? Do you have any Dominic Bach stuff? Um, yes, actually I did bring some, some blue stuff over. Um, but he's like not, I guess as highly touted as obviously. 
Yeah, he went 25th overall last year to St. Louis. This is a bit bigger deal, 6th overall. Right, and because of the fact that my family actually watches Adler Mannheim, which is the team that Sider played for, um, it's a little bit bigger of a deal. And then Dreisaitl is Dreisaitl. Like, that guy, he is the best German in the league, and it's not very close. Um, so I was happy. Um, I definitely think Detroit could have got him, like, couple picks later but I just don't think they wanted to trade down too far and risk not getting him and kudos to Iserman for saying you know what we're gonna pick him and I really do think he'll turn out but that could be a little bit of the German in me um I was kind of surprised that Pod Colson went to 10 I mean I think that's it could potentially be a home run pick for Vancouver yeah, it's a big boomer bust kind of situation because you love his tools, you love his skating ability. He's kind of like the modern day power forward in that he's strong on the puck and he's really hard to knock off the puck, but he's not just a big physical guy who doesn't have any skill. He's got skill. He can skate. He's his own entry machine when he skates up the ice with the puck. The question is, does that translate into offense? Does that translate into things that are going to help his team win? Can he be a top six forward in the NHL? And he has first-line upside. Can he become that first-line type of winger? It's a big question mark. I could see him becoming a future all-star who scores 30 goals, gets 30 assists every year. I could see him being more of a second-line guy. I could see him being a Valerie Nachushkin. And I could see him maybe never crossing over the sea and, and never really becoming an NHL player. So I think there's such a wide range of outcomes on a player like him, kind of like Philip Broberg, where I'm not confident in the pick, but when you're taking him 10th overall, I feel like that's a good risk to take. I wouldn't take that risk on him in the top five, but slipping to nine or 10, that's where I feel like you got to take a big swing on a player. And when you're a team like Vancouver, who's trying to build through the draft, you don't care about second, third line kind of players who might help you. You need cornerstones of the franchise that are going to help you contend for a title. And I feel like if everything breaks right, Pug Colson gives you that chance. So for a team like Vancouver, picking him that late, 10th overall, I love the pick. And I'm excited to see if he comes over. Him and Pedersen on the ice at the same time could be a lot of fun. Oh, man. <laughs> he's going to create, if, if that happens, he's going to create so much space for Pedersen just because of how he plays. I mean, I think a lot gets lost. He is really competitive on the ice in terms of like he's kind of a bit of a jerk right he's got that he got a bit of Corey Perry yeah he reminds me a bit of like Malkin he's like a, po a poor man's Malkin is what I compare him to yeah but I think he's got he's a bit more mean like he's not Corey Perry mean but he's mean like when uh Malkin gets in red mist mode Ah, uh, yes sort of like that <laughs> so okay that's a couple players who uh what teams did you like like what drafts did you like by certain teams? Because I definitely have a couple. And I think we have the same team at least once. I feel like every time I was thinking, oh my God, this player is slipping. He's still available. Five seconds later, the Carolina Hurricanes would draft him. And I just feel like they had such a good draft. Not necessarily in terms of the high end at the top end in the first round. But when you look at the picks that they had, it's funny. You could convince yourself, hey, wow, they have a lot of assets here. Maybe they're going to trade up into the first round or into the high second round. Nope, they traded back a few times, picked up extra assets, and their picks in the third round in particular, I, I just thought were mind-boggling. Patrick Pistola, one of my favorite forwards in the draft. I thought he was a first-round talent. Anthony Honka has been one of my favorite defensemen in the draft for a while. I love his upside. Even though he's a risky player, much like Pud Coles, and I, I think he has top four, maybe even first pairing upside if everything breaks right. But there are a lot of red flags. That's why he slipped into the third round. And then Dominic Fensore, all three of these players went in the third round. Pistola, Honka, and Fensore all went in the third round. 
you could convince me that I might take them with a late first round pick. So I just think that's ridiculous value for Carolina to pick up those guys. Also made a couple other nice picks either later in the draft, earlier in the draft, but getting Dominic Fensore, who for my money is the next Sam Gerrard or the next Tory Krug or the next, I don't know, just speedy defenseman who, even though he's not that tall, is so good at driving play because of his skating ability and because of his puck moving ability that I'm not sure his height's really going to matter. I love Carolina's draft. I love everything they did. Do you have any other teams that come to mind? Because I feel like everyone kind of fell in love with Carolina's draft, at least on hockey Twitter. I feel like it shows that um, Carolina definitely values more than just like the size or what you, what kind of meets the eye. And it shows me that they value what guys like Eric Tulski and Kevin Connor are doing. And when a team kind of does that, it kind of changes the approach. And then you see perceived value picks obviously we won't know how great this Carolina draft was until a few years from now when some of them are developed and a lot of this does fall in their development staff but I think for right now in terms of value they had a good draft I loved what Colorado did can I just say something before we get into Colorado I feel like when we're evaluating drafts there's a lot of people who will come on and say you can't evaluate this right now you have to wait three four five years before we can evaluate it And I don't like that way of approaching something because I understand it. I understand that this is a pick for the future. And if this player pans out in the future, yeah, it's going to look like a good pick in the future. But all we have right now is the information that we currently have. So I feel like we have to make a decision based on what we know. Based on what we know, is a player like Dominic Fensore likely to succeed in the future or not? Based on his tools, based on his point projections, based on every piece of predictive uh, knowledge that we have. And that's what you have to do at this point. And that's why I think it's fair to say that a team like Carolina had a very strong draft considering the assets they had. And a team like Ottawa had a very weak draft considering the assets they had. They reached on a lot of players that they probably could have picked up in later rounds, which is exactly what Carolina did. They waited and they picked players later than they should have gone. And I think that's the smartest way to attack the draft. Don't fall in love with your guy. Just wait, 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 and then find that player slips through the cracks and pick him because that's how you extract value out of a draft pick. Yeah, I think there's the difference between evaluating the value and then evaluating sort of in a few years from now because you're looking at way different things, right? You're evaluating now on what did they get, what value did they get based on the information we have available, and then when you're evaluating down the road, it's what value did we get based on sort of the development and what's kind of happened since, right? We tend to forget that those two are separate, but we tend to put them together. Exactly. And so with Colorado, I mean, getting Byram at fourth when they already have an embarrassment of Richards on D, um, you look at that top four and what it could potentially be in a few years. Sam Gerrard, Kale McCarr, Bowen Byram, Connor Timmons. That is Nashville level, like, unbelievable I, I I love it. I, I love that all their defensemen are mobile and play kind of that modern style of game. We'll see what Timmons is at the NHL level, but I've loved him at every other level. I've loved him at the OHL level. I've loved him at the AHL level. I've loved him at any international tournament he plays in. He seems to do really well. So I, I think that Connor Timmons is going to be a top four defenseman. And then the other guy, Sam Gerrard. If you haven't heard me bring him up on the podcast, he's one of my favorite players in the league. I just think for a 5'9 defenseman with his skating ability, his ability to move out the puck, and really despite losing puck battles along the wall, he's able to drive results and drive play up the ice so well that I think that's what the game's about these days. Kale McCarr is a human highlight reel at at the defense position. He's like the defense version of Connor McDavid. He's obviously not as good, but just... 
you rarely see defensemen make highlight real plays every game, and I feel like he has two or three that you have to look for. So envisioning a, a Byram McCarr top pairing in a couple years, and then a Sam Gerrard Connor Timmins second pairing. Colorado is going to be a fun team to watch, man, and then they have tons of cap space this offseason, so I'm really excited to see what they do with it. I also like the new hook pick, the Drew Hellison pick, Alec getting Alex Bocage in the third round. Like, I thought those all were really, really good picks, and so I'm interested to see like how these players develop because on the outset when you're evaluating, I thought Colorado and Carolina had some of the best drafts given who they got where and what kind of talent that they've added to their system. Um, I was definitely impressed. And if all those players pan out, it's going to be unbelievable in terms of the talent that they'll be able to inject into each of their lineups. Yeah, I don't think it's fair to say that, you know, all those guys are going to pan out, but I think it's fair to say that Byram has an extremely high likelihood of success. Alex Newhook has a very strong chance of success. And then in the second, third, fifth rounds, if one of those guys pans out, you're happy usually. So that's why, you know, even if a guy has a 20% chance or a 30% chance, you take him in the fifth round. Well, that's higher than league average, which is about 10% at that range. So anytime you can improve your chances of landing an NHL player or landing a valuable asset to your team, you do it. And I feel like that's what we liked about Carolina's draft. That's what we liked about Colorado's draft. That's what I liked about Toronto's draft is that despite picking later, they extracted value out of those picks. You know, Toronto getting Nicholas Robertson in the late second round. He shouldn't have been available, but he was, and they took the best player available. Miko Kokkonen shouldn't have been available in the third round. You know, Anthony Honka probably shouldn't have been available in the third round, but you take a risk on those kind of players, and the upside is there on a player like Honka, whereas on Kokkonen, I think the chances are extremely likely that he plays in the Leafs uniform in the next couple of years, maybe let's say three years from now. So I think that these are value picks that I like in the later rounds, even if they don't pan out, because I think right now their likelihood of success is much higher than the players who were taken right around them in the draft. All right, so we've talked about the draft picks. Let's talk about some of the other things that happened at the draft, like the trades and sort of why some of these trades happened, like the P.K. Subban trade, the Patrick Marlowe trade. Um, why do some of these trades have to happen? And they always seem to happen right around the draft. Yeah, the Calvin DeHaan trade was another one that I thought was bizarre. Right, and obviously there's a salary cap, and Alan Walsh had a great tweet um, this weekend, and he said, I had five NHL club executives tell me the salary cap is killing the NHL. A team drafts well, it develops its players, they become contenders, and now GMs are forced to literally give away key assets. I thought that was a great point. I think that's on the teams. I think that's on the teams for not signing players to good contracts. I feel like if you are and you're handling your business well, you shouldn't have to trade away a good player for basically nothing. The P.K. Subban trade to me doesn't make any sense. And I think it, it shows where priorities are in the league right now because so many teams are looking to dump salary. As you said, the Patrick Marleau trade is a great example. Toronto basically was put in a position where they had to get rid of him. Carolina clearly wanted to move out cap space for Calvin DeHaan, trading him for basically nothing, but they already had plenty of cap space, so I don't know if that's more of an internal cap problem versus an actual salary cap problem. You look at a team like Colorado shipping out Carl Soderberg and getting an asset back for him, that didn't make any sense. I don't know why Arizona's giving up a third-round pick and uh, Kevin Connaughton for him. That didn't really make much sense to me, but the P.K. Subban one's the huge one. You have... Uh, I think unarguably a first pairing quality defenseman. And even though he's coming off of a rough year in the previous three or four or five seasons, he was a top five defenseman in the NHL. And I think if we're going to compare PK Subban and Drew Doughty, 
they're very similar over the last five years. Both of them have been incredible defensemen and then had a really rough 2018-2019 season. Do you think Drew Doughty would have been traded for Steve Santini, a second and a third round pick? I don't think he would have. So I'm not sure why teams severely undervalue P.K. Subban. And I get that, yes, it's a $9 million contract. Not many teams can take that on. But look at the teams that are lining up to give Tyler Myers $8 million in free agency, which we are going to talk about. I just feel like at some point, yes, salary cap is an issue and you don't want your players to be making more than they deserve. But when it comes to a true difference maker, you know, a first line forward, a first pairing defenseman, a starting goaltender, if they're making maybe a million more than you would like them to be making, I still think that has value because of how hard it is to find star players in the league these days. Okay, but let's say you're a team that's like not very good and you have a few solid picks. So Tampa Bay, great example. Toronto, great example. With Tampa, Nikita Kucherov clearly deserves more than nine and a half. Braden Point probably deserves in that number. Steven Samkos deserves what he's making. And so if you have enough good players, Andre Vasilevsky is $10 million. You don't even think about it. Oh, I don't know. Goalies are weird. Goalies are hard to project. Ah, uh, see, I think he's a superstar. That's another conversation for another day. Let's say you have four players that are superstars, which Toronto does. They have Marner, Tavares, uh, Matthews at minimum. Do the Leafs have Marner? Okay, Sorry. On their team. <laughs> right? And you could argue that if there wasn't a cap, that these players would be worth, and Dom Lustrician made this argument, that a, the player's actually worth $12 million, but because of the cap, these teams can't afford to keep them. Right? So I think that you're right in the fact that there are bad contracts that are restrictive, but if you have four or five superstar players in the way that Colorado likely will... Because um, I think we can all agree that Nathan McKinnon deserves more than he's making, quite a bit more than he's making. Um, you can't keep them all because if the salary cap remains at 80, each of these players probably deserves 9 to 10 to $12 million. That's four or five players taking up 70% of your cap. Like, it just, it doesn't work. I think that's going to be the future of the NHL. We'll see. I don't know. I think it's going to be the, the mid-tier guys need to get paid less because you look at Nashville, it's like, oh, well, they had to clear salary. Nick Benino's making $4.1 million to play on your fourth line. Yeah, but he got a first-place Selkie vote. Did you know that? Well, yeah, well, Jay McClement came sixth in Selkie voting in 2013, so I'm not sure how much uh, stock to put in Selkie votes these days. <laughs> exactly. Um, there are some other ones you can point to here. Craig Smith, what line's he playing on? Probably the fourth. Second, third line? Uh, he was on the fourth at one point. All right, he's making $4.25 million. Kyle Turris isn't providing value on that $6 million contract. I know that Subban didn't have a great year this year, but I'm confident he'll have a bounce back, much like I'm confident that Doughty's going to have a bounce back. Oh, so am I. I think that John Hines is going to play the living daylights out of him. It's so interesting that the top-end talent in New Jersey, it's like Taylor Hall can play like half the game, P.K. Subban can play half the game, Jack Hughes can do a bunch of cool power play stuff, Nico Hichier can play a lot of minutes, and then the depth is very questionable, but I love the idea that New Jersey just has a few star players, and they're probably going to ride the living crap out of them, and I love it, I think it's going to be fun, but in Nashville it's funny, everyone's going to say that, oh, you know, it's the Subban contract that did them in. I don't think so. I think it was the surrounding contracts that did them in. I think it's the Nick Benito contract that was a big mistake. I think it was 
the Craig Smith contract, giving him that extra year to, to take him to age 30 is a mistake. The Kyle Turris contract looked like a good bet at the time, but man, that does not look like a good contract now. And Pekka Rene, you'd love to have him off your books next season because you probably want to run with UC Saros, but Pekka Rene is making $5 million for the next two seasons. So I think that's the bigger issue. Subban making $9 million, it's not ideal, but he's a superstar player when he's when he's having a good season, which I think he will have next season. The other guys aren't, so... Right, so then you see, like, what Poyle said, and he outright came out and admitted it. He says, we're not a better team because of that trade, but we had to do it because of the cap. So it was quite interesting to see that, like, he, he said, he outright admitted that they are not a better hockey team because, I mean, if you look at that trade, like, I have evaluations on both of the players involved, and no. <laughs> no. And you may or may not have worked for the Devils at one point, so you don't want to get sued and give your opinion on it. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not super totally interested in that. Um, but it's interesting to see that you're seeing a lot of big names on the market as opposed to trying to move out the smaller stuff. And I'm not surprised that someone like P.K. Subban got traded because he does have a big contract, and I do think he'll have a bounce-back year, but I guess Nashville obviously has determined that Roman Yossi is worth more to their team than P.K. Subban is. and I would disagree with that, but again, that might be another conversation for another day on how we evaluate defensemen. Right. And so, do you think that there's going to be a change to this, or would you change anything? I agree that the middle-tier players definitely probably are going to have to get pushed down. You'll probably see something similar as you do in basketball, where the stars are getting paid, like, enormous amounts of money and then and what's funny is that in the NBA they're still underpaid relative to their value in wins because a star player in the NBA makes a bigger difference than they do in the NHL you know oh, yeah, because, because they play, play three quarters of almost the, game. the entire game you can on offense run every possession if you want to and it's just you can make a bigger impact on the game but with that being said I still feel like star players are undervalued in hockey I feel like one player can drive a line, and you can put two complimentary wingers on his side, and he'll do well. You can have one incredible defenseman, like a P.K. Subban, and play him with an Alexei Emelin, who I would argue is a replacement-level defender. And that top pairing will have success. You can put Drew Doughty with a Derek Forbort, and they'll have success. So, I feel like a star player has so much value, and a complimentary player has very little value, has very replaceable value. That's why we call it replacement level. And it's why you look at a contract like Asa Lindell in Dallas, I don't think he's that good. Who got a Norris vote. Okay, well, we can talk about players who got one Norris vote or one Selkie vote or one Calder vote or one MVP vote and will be blue in the face by the end of the day because it's probably a hometown reporter giving you know, a third-line player a vote that they don't deserve. But back to my bigger point, Asa Lindell in Dallas is largely a product of playing with John Klingberg. You know, you play John Klingberg with a replacement-level defenseman, and then you play him with Asa Lindell, what's the difference? I don't think the difference would be that stark, which is why I wouldn't pay Lindell more than replacement-level. And that's why I would trade Lindell and have a revolving door of guys who can play with my star players. And that's why I just think star players deserve more money, second-line players don't deserve as much as you think, and complementary players, a guy who literally complements a first line, complements a second line, complements a second pairing, I think those guys are ridiculously overpaid, and I think that's the market correction that needs to be made and hasn't been made yet. And that's where the Nikita Zaitsevs, the Chris Russells, the Milan Luciches, those guys are just exorbitantly overpaid, and it messes with the market and results in star players not getting paid as much as they should. 
So what do you think of the William Carlson deal? Because he's getting 5-9. I think that's a pretty good deal. Um, it's funny. You compare that to the Kevin Hayes contract. You're like, wait, what? Why did you sign that? You could have got much more. That's exactly what I was sort of thinking about. But I guess like in Vegas, he was happy there. The eight years was really important to him. It came out. Um, but now I think Vegas is like $5 million over the cap. So who are they trading? Colin Miller. They've, they basically announced it, haven't they? I mean, well, they're going to have to, but I think they got to move more than that. Like, I think they've got to move a Stastny or a Pacioretty type of... Both those players have no trade, or at least modified no trade clauses. Yeah, but you've got some not great salary going on in Vegas, but I think the William Carlson deal is a great deal. Cody Eakin makes $3.85 million to provide what I would consider a replacement level of value. And this is the problem again. It's funny. It's like we we pick on these players who are making what they actually deserve. Paul Statsny's making $6.5 million. That's par for the course for a second-line center. Pat Reddy's making $7 million. Do you love that? Probably not. But again, that's what you needed to sign him to to get him out of Montreal. Mark Stone's making $9.5 million. He's a superstar. I think he deserves eleven. I, I honestly think he deserves more, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm just saying, like, he's not the problem. Marcia So's making much less than he deserves. Riley Smith, $5 million for a very strong top six winger, I think is fair value. Alex Tuck, $4.75 million. Yeah, that's a steep price, but he's going to get better in the next year or two, so I like it. The problem isn't that. The problem is Cody Eakin at 3.85. The problem is Ryan Rees at, at 2.8. That's, wow, that's a lot of money. And that's my point. The problem is, where's another one I can point to here? Marc-Andre Fleury at $7 million for the next three years. You know, it's like, these are the problem contracts. So I don't like getting mad at a player for making what he's worth in a P.K. Subban, for example. That's not the player you should trade. You should trade the player who's making less than they're worth. And I feel like that doesn't happen enough. Or sorry, the player, the player that's making more than they're worth. Right, well, you just shouldn't sign those contracts. So speaking of signing, it's interview week, which means that if you're a pending RFA, pending UFA, you're allowed to like talk to other teams. Who's talking to who, Ian? Uh, well, if you ask Darren Drager, uh, Mitch Marner. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Should we cut that? Let's I don't even know. <laughs> no, let's just, we'll start with the UFAs and then maybe make our way to that situation. All right. So Tyler Myers is going to make a max contract. That's alarming. $8 million? I've heard 7 by 7 is a guarantee, and that he might get closer to 8. When did Tyler Myers become a first-pairing defenseman? When did Tyler Myers become good? Tyler Myers is a great example of a guy who, you know how I was talking about the second tier of players who get ridiculously overpaid? Yes! He's a shining example of whoever signs him is going to have a terrible contract on their books for the next seven years. And it's like Nikita Zaitsev. It's just like, no, don't sign him to a bad contract. If you can't sign him to a good contract, don't sign him. It'll save you a lot in the long run. I saw this tweet, and it was like defenseman making more, or $8 million or more. It was like Drew Doughty, Eric Carlson, Brent Burns. They all had Norris listed. P.K. Subban. P.K. Subban, and then uh, Tyler Myers, and in brackets, instead of Norris, it said tall. (laughs) (laughs) And here's the thing. Tyler Myers is what, a number four? I would say, yeah, that's a fair. He's a number four. Yeah, I, I feel like number three might be a bit too generous, but I, I'd say number four. On a cup contender, I don't mind him as a four. And I say he probably ends up playing with Quinn Hughes in Vancouver just because of their defense right now. Because if you look at it, it's Quinn Hughes and not much else. In July 1st, you'll be able to say that in the last two weeks, 
Vancouver has signed Tyler Myers to a seven-year contract for eight million, maybe seven and a half million, and traded away a future first-round pick for JT Miller, who's a second-line winger. What the hell? I can't imagine that their scouts and scouting director were very happy about trading that pick. Oh, it's 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 a thing. It's funny. This is the market. This is where you overpay for the wrong type of player. Well, then, what's the right type of player that you can actually spend money on? It's Artemi Panarin. Is there? I'm not sure if there's anyone else in this free agent market, but you could give Panarin $10 million for the next seven years, and I don't think that would be an overpay. So he's interviewing... Him and Bobrovsky are interviewing like as a tandem. Um, they were in Florida, and then, according to Bobrovsky, they were in New York interviewing with the Islanders. I actually think that the Islanders could sneak up and get both of them. I think Florida is probably your betting favorite right now. Where are the Islanders going to get the cap space from? It's interesting. Like, you'd obviously have to make moves. But- I mean, I get that Anders Lee is, is leaving them for the second time in, in consecutive off seasons. Their captain is going to leave them. Isn't he the one that said that loyalty means something like not even 365 days ago? Hey, I, I loyalty doesn't exist in pro sports. I'm, exactly. I, I'm sick of, Can we, I mean, yeah, let's paste that on every wall in every professional sports facility. But yeah, the, the Islanders as of right now have 20 million in projected cap space if they don't re-sign Anders Lee. And let's say that they, do they have any RFAs? No major ones. I mean, Anthony Beauvillier, probably not going to make a ton. Michael Dalcole, not going to make a ton. So, yeah, they have 20 million in cap space to play around with here. They, oh, Robin Leonard needs to get paid, and he's a UFA. Well, what's interesting is if you sign Bobrovsky, then you're not signing Lehner. Interesting. And then Lehner could become, all of a sudden, an attractive goalie that we weren't talking about because we all assumed that the Islanders were going to resign him. But if they make a big push for Bobrovsky and Panarin, then Lehner becomes a goaltender on the open market that, hmm, you know what? Edmonton probably should look at. Or like, I'm thinking like a Carolina who desperately needs a goalie. Like, wow, this might actually be a player we should spend on. Right. Yeah, that would be, there's a player. But was he, do you think that he was a product of the trot system? And before we get into that, um, if you haven't seen Robin Lehner's Masterton acceptance speech, um, you need to go take the 45 seconds and watch it. I was crying listening to it, but for all the Islanders did for him and helping him on his journey to sort of get better and, and support him, like kudos to that organization. That's all class. I'm really happy for him in that regard, but I'm conflicted when it comes to Laner because even though I love the fact that he's so public about dealing with mental health and making it easier for people in a similar situation to seek help. I love that. I feel like we need more of that in sports. DeMar DeRozan, Kevin Love, um, you know, now seeing in hockey where I think there's a big problem with mental health being seen as, oh, you're, you're being weak, you know, oh, just tough through it. Like, no, we need to be able to talk about mental health constructively. That's nonsense. I love him for that. But he's also a huge Trump supporter, so I don't know where my respect for him lies. It's it's tough. Yeah, and we're not even going to get close <laughs> to politics on this podcast. Yep, not touching that one. I like nope. that. Yep, just smooth, controlled exit after that. I like so, it. Panarin and Bobrovsky, I think they end up together whether it's Florida or New York. Tyler Myers getting $8 million. So, what does Jake Gardner get if Myers gets 7 or $8 million? You got to think Gardner gets, what, a 7 by 7 Okay, but you, how do you argue that... Gardner deserves less than Myers. Uh, the right-handedness and the height? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. The right-handedness, 
I will, yes, the height. I'm is- sorry, the right-handedness I was actually serious about. The height was a joke, but uh, <laughs> right-handed defensemen are more valuable than left-handed defensemen. It's just a fact. It's just um, supply and demand. But you you are not for a minute going to say that Tyler Myers is a better defenseman than Jake Gardner. I'm not going to, but I'm going to say that 200 hockey men might believe that. Right. Okay. And you're not going to touch that sentence again. I'm just, I'm, I'm giving you tons of things that you can't work with here. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. I super appreciate it. But let's talk about RFAs and two super interesting ones. Um, I think there are four interesting ones, no? Well, that we've heard stuff about. So Marner and Aho. The Aho news is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Sebastian Aho is making more than $6 million. Get out of here. Eight-year deal, six million dollars. Like he's worth closer to ten, buddy. Yeah, exactly. If he's worth like he's worth way closer to ten. Like he's worth ten on an eight-year deal. Like I'm oh sorry, yeah, he's really good. He's totally good. So do you want to hit Aho first, or do you want to hit Marner first? Um, quick question. Rank the following players: Braden Point, Sebastian Aho, Mitch Marner, Miko Rantanen. In terms of value, just straight up value. I was going to say entertainment value. Martin's at the top. Who would you rather have on your team, independent of fandom, and you're building a team, or you have a winner right now, which some of those teams do? But you, which player has the most value in your opinion? Braden Point. Braden Point. I agree. Uh, probably Aho too. And that's because he plays center. I'm imagining that you put yes. him ahead of Martin and, and Ranton. Yes. I'm not sure where to rank him with Marner and Rantanen, because I feel like Marner right. and Rantanen it's tight. are like the two best wingers we've seen come out of an ELC since Patrick Kane. Agreed. So it's tough, unless you consider Leon Dreisaitl a winger, and that one's tough, because Dreisaitl played a bit of center, and that inflated his value a bit, but he was a really good winger in terms of his on-ice value and what he provided, so that's a tricky one. I have Marner ahead of Rantanen just because I think Marner does a better job of driving a line, and if you look at Rantanen's numbers when he doesn't play with McKinnon, there's a really sharp drop-off, and so... I mean, if you looked at uh, Bozak and JVR when they play without Marner, uh, when they played with Connor Brown, the line's metrics didn't change. Yes, but I, I think that Marner and Rantan, like, they're close in value. Like, I think they should be within a million dollars of each other. That would be my assessment. I think all those players... Well, maybe you have Braden Point much higher. I think all those players are roughly within a million of each other. And I'm of the opinion that it should be 9 to 10. I'd love to see it be north of 10. And I'd love to see star players actually get paid what they deserve. But I feel like in the current RFA market, that's not the case. I would have the wingers at 9, like in a 9 range. I'm of the opinion that Point and Ajo both deserve more more than 10. Now with the internal cap in Carolina, we don't know sort of... What's going on? But they they traded Dahan, and that's like four million bucks in cap space. Carolina traded Dahan, yeah. Yeah. So is something up there? Like, do you think that that they're clearing? There's four million for Aho. Why did okay? Here's the thing: they clearly moved him for a salary cap reason because there's really no other reason. I don't know why you would make that trade. You didn't really get anything of value back other than Gustav Forsling, who's bad in my opinion. So. Uh, I like Calvin DeHaan. I think he's a good player. I just think that maybe they looked at their team, they looked at their roster construction, and they decided, eh, we can't have this guy making this much money for the next couple of years, but then why did you sign it in the first place? So, I don't know, maybe they were less than enthused with his numbers last year. They felt that he's really declining, and they want to get out of it before it looks bad. I don't know. But now they have $25 million in cap space. They're not going to spend to the cap. They never do. But 
I don't know. What are they going to do with all this cap space now? Because they still haven't even bought out Marlowe. That's going to give them more cap space. Well, I think Aho, like, I think they know that they're not going to get away with signing him to $6 million. Like, there's just, it is not going to happen. I think that's like a play, and they're hoping he settles somewhere in the $8.5 million range. Which is still not even close to enough. No. Like, not even close to enough. It's funny. Everything we've heard from Marner's side should really be said about Aho. And point. <laughs> Yeah, Braden Point, if you said, if, if everything that came from the Marner camp was said by Braden Point and company, I'd, I'd be, be like, like yes. oh yeah, I, th- I, think, I think I agree with that. That makes sense. But yes. like, no, Mitch Marner's a winger. He's not the most valuable player on his team. Like, no, I'm sorry. Braden Point, other than Kucherov, there's an argument to be made that he's the most valuable player on his team. And he has 40 goals too. He has a 40 goal season. Yeah. Um, so with a, with any rumor, I would say, um, especially with the Marner one, because that seems to be the one generating... The most nonsense. Um, I'd probably be extremely careful on what you're believing because I know what Ian thinks and I'm sure he'll get into it. But uh, Mitch Marner, like, is he worth good money? Yes. Is he going to get $13 million? Probably not. And if he signs an offer sheet for $13 million, you take those four first round picks. That would make him the highest played player and highest paid player in the league. Yeah, because... Uh, McDavid's 12-5? 12-5. And McDavid's a center. And the best player on the planet. I was gonna say, and the best player on the planet. You forgot that that part. Um, <laughs> but I would say, like, I'll let you get into this, but be very careful about what you're reading. I don't want to. I really, really don't want to. Don't make me talk about the Marner situation in the media. I just, I'm so sick of all of it. Well, what's interesting is, like, you hear one or two people saying, oh, like, he's going to get an offer sheet. Oh, he's going to be worth in the teens. And then you hear another person report that multiple team execs don't even think he's going to get an offer sheet because unless he wants a, a, unless he signs a seven-year contract, I'm not giving up four first-round picks. Like, I'm sorry, if I'm offer sheeting you, I'm either getting you for seven years or I'm not giving up four first-round picks because of the trade-off there. Like, I'm not signing a five-year deal and giving up four first-round picks. Are you out of your mind? I think we all know who you're talking about in the media, so maybe... I'll, I'll just say his name. I don't care if this gets me in trouble, but Darren Drager has been driving me insane lately because I don't think what he's doing is reputable journalism. I think that he is very clearly getting um, his intel from Mitch Marner's dad or his agent and just keeps constantly putting out there literally of like three, four times a day. And... It's not news breaking in the way that Bob McKenzie would be breaking something or Elliot Friedman would be breaking something that was actually news or um, Chris Johnston providing news because they tend to look at both sides and then Bob McKenzie will hear from one side. That, yeah, Bob McKenzie will hear from one GM, he'll hear from other GMs, he'll hear around the league, he'll hear from an agent, he'll hear from the GM and then he'll put out what he has heard what he thinks is likely and then just kind of digest it in a way in a way that makes sense to everyone and it's it's an incredible job. Bob McKenzie is the king of this. I think Chris Johnston also does an excellent job. I think Elliot Friedman when reporting does a great job. When speculating I don't think he's quite as good, but when it comes to straight up reporting, Bob McKenzie, Chris Johnston, Elliot Friedman, the way they do it is the way I think it should be done. Darren Drager literally anytime he hears something from Marner's camp, which is basically the only intel he has at this point in the league. He doesn't have intel on anything else. He just puts it out and it comes out three, four times a day. And it's so transparent at this point that he's basically negotiating on behalf of the Marner camp. 
it's funny, I'm a Leafs fan, so obviously this frustrates me a bit on the emotional side, but just as a fan of the league, I don't like this. This isn't the way that reporting should be done, in my opinion. This isn't the way we should be getting news, is just negotiating on behalf of an agent. And Darren Drager's not the only one who does it, there are other people who do it. I think it's just a sad state of journalism these days. It's funny, I, I talked about Waj, Adrian Wojnarowski, who's basically the Bob McKenzie of the NBA, but he's not like Bob McKenzie because he will often pander to certain agents and players or teams to say nice things about them publicly, and then he gets his intel. And I feel like that's kind of the, the world we live in right now when it comes to sports journalism. You need to make nice with your sources if you're going to have sources because, you know, getting the first scoop is the biggest thing these days. But I just, I'd like to be, see it be done in a more responsible way. And I feel like what Darren Drager's doing right now isn't responsible. And I'd like to see it done in more of a Bob McKenzie type of way. But maybe that's an unrealistic expectation. Maybe Bob McKenzie is just the GOAT and I should stop expecting other reporters to, you know, follow in his footsteps. Well, I think the one thing that we should point out, because I'm seeing a lot of like, oh, he could just sit out. The Leafs, if he's going to play for the Leafs, he has to be signed before the season starts. Because with Nylander, like, he was a $10 million cap hit this year. They can't afford to have that with Marner. Like, they can't have $15 million on the cap. Yeah, the way it works is that the longer you go into the season, your first year will cost more money. And you're following, let's call it seven years, will cost less money. It'll be an eight-year deal. So if you sign two months afterwards, your first year is going to be crazy high. Like Nylander's was $10 million for the first year. And then in the next few years, for Nylander it was the next five years, it was a lower cap hit at $6.9 million, give or take. Overall, it was a 7.5 AAV, but the way that it ended up working out is that it was $10 million the first year and then 6.9 for the next five years. If Marner wants to get eight years, 80 million, let's call it, you know, eight years, 10 million per season, which would be on the high end of his comps, but I think might actually be fair, considering what the player is worth. We'll see what the other Rantanen, Aho, and company get, because his value is going to be relative to those players. That's what we're going to compare it to. But for fun, let's call it an eight-year, $80 million contract. He can't sign that a month into the season, because then the first year is going to be like... 12 million and they can't afford that so he's either signed or he's not playing for, in the, for the Leafs this year yeah that's the problem is that you can't wait it out and this happened with Goudreau Calgary was very close to the cap and it got close to the season and Goudreau and his agent and the team all knew that crap if this goes a few weeks longer we're either gonna have to trade Goudreau or we're gonna have to let him sit out the season and that's not ideal for anyone Goudreau kind of caved and told his agent, Darren Ferris, the same agent for Mitch Marner, just get a deal done. I don't even care what the AAV is. And he signed a ridiculously team-friendly, I think it was $6.75 million for six right. years, when he easily should have got north of eight for, for the season that he put up the year before. He was a point-per-game player, had a 64-point season his first year. Like That's a player who should have been making at least $8 million on the market, but... He caved late in the year, and he got a ridiculously cheap contract. I'm not sure the Leafs are counting on that situation happening with Marner. And they shouldn't. No, they shouldn't. They absolutely shouldn't expect to get him for, like, you know, $7 million on a six-year deal. Like, that's not happening. But I think it's important to point out that Marner can't sit out a few weeks into the season because the Leafs won't be able to afford it. So if this is going to get done, it needs to get done before day one of the regular season. Otherwise, we're going to have a situation here. Right, and so that's sort of that. I would just say, like, be leery. And obviously, Marner, he's rumored to have three or four interviews, and whatever's going to happen, happens. I still don't think that there's going to be an offer sheet on a big-name player. 
Do you think we'll see one at all? Let's call it a mid-tier player. I think you could potentially see an offer sheet signed. It's potentially matched, but I think you can see it signed. I just don't think it's going to be on one of the big four. My favorite range is that second round pick range where it's 4.2 right. million is the max. And, and so let's say you offer someone like a six year, $4.2 million contract to Andreas Athanasiu, which is something you could have done a couple of years ago, or, you know, uh, Andre, Andre Kasha, which you could have done last year. Zach Wierenski. Well, I well don't he's th- going to sign for more than that. I was going to say, he's going to sign for a lot more than that, but it's that $4.2 million range that I love because maybe you find a middling player on a team. Captain and Janssen would have been those options this year which is why I think it was a very good move of the Leafs to, to sign them before that became an option. I know that they're not officially signed, but the deals are, they seem to be in place. What was interesting was it was right after Dubas said, like, if one of our players signed an offer sheet, we might not match. And like, not even 24 hours later, both of them were like, actually, we're just going to sign because I honestly think that they are or were afraid they want to be Leafs. And if they went and pushed and signed somewhere else, that the Leafs may not match and they may not get to be Leafs. Like Janssen's like, well, crap, now I'm in Buffalo for the next four years. Or Kapanen's <laughs> like, now I don't get to play with my best friend kind of thing, right? So I think that getting both of them for essentially a little bit more than Marlowe money is tidy business. Yep, yep. You're not going to hear a disagreement from me here. So uh, I guess we should move on to the mailbag before we get out of here. Are we going to discuss kale chips, or, or do we have something more important to discuss, hockey-related? Okay, we'll do one hot, like mailbag question, and then we're talking about your ridiculous kale chips. Delicious. Do most jersey numbers and meaning have meaning in hockey? So, like, the example he gave um, is, in soccer, 10 is for your best player. So you think of, like, Leo Messi... Two to six are for defensemen, seven to eight are for midfields, nine is a striker, but like all of the low numbers are reserved for like the better players on your team. Like if you're some bench player, you ain't getting number seven. Um, I think wide receivers in football, it used to be you had to be in the 80s. Quarterbacks had to be below 20. Um, you saw Jack Hughes get 86 today. Like are you seeing, I know like the number eight, the number nine have some meaning just because of what they're associated with. Obviously you're not even allowed to wear 99 anymore, but are we seeing like less and less that players care whether they get like a high number or not? Cause you see like Matthews wears 34, like no one wears 34. I mean, the goaltenders have their own numbers, obviously like one. I was going to say James Reimer does. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> but yeah, so like there's goalie numbers. And I think I would say like, would you agree that defensemen traditionally wear like two, three, four, five, six, yeah, yeah, come to think of it, yeah, that's actually a common number you see. The, the high-octane forwards like having the high numbers, you know, you think of like the, the hotshot Europeans with like 88, 92, 91, that kind of thing. But not even, like McDavid's 97, Crosby's 87. Those are years for them, yeah. But I also think in soccer, so it's it's a little different. So in soccer, they don't retire numbers, right? With the exception of Totti in Roma, who's number 10, but so you it's almost, they take it as like, it's an honor to wear the number. Whereas in Montreal, I don't think they have a number under 10 that you can even wear. Well, yeah, so many have been retired there. And it's funny in soccer, it's like, well, number seven is your right winger. Number 11 is your left winger. Number t- nine is your striker. Number 10 is your central attacking mid, you know? Um, well, 10 is more your best player. Depends on the team, but yeah. Um, two, two, three, four, five are your back four. Goaltender wears number one. Uh that, that's how it's done in soccer. We don't do that in hockey as much. Football, 
kind of does it a little bit with offensive linemen, wide receivers, quarterbacks have numbers assigned, but if you want a specific number, you can usually have it. I don't know, in hockey, maybe it's just because hockey's boring, but I feel like the numbers don't really mean much. Oh, but the rookies always get, like, the garbage number. So if you see a guy who's, like, a young guy and he's wearing, like, in the 50s or in the 60s, like, that's probably not going to be his number. I mean, Jack Hughes just took 86. I don't know what the deal is with that. Obviously, he couldn't have six because that's Andy Green's number. And you're not about to rock up there as a rookie and ask the captain for the number. So that probably wouldn't be a good idea. Um, But I know he wore that playing minor midget um, for the Toronto Marlies. So see what happens there. But I think in hockey, it's less like it is in soccer because we retire numbers. So yes, numbers have meaning because like we retire them in hockey. Whereas in soccer, it's like, it's an honor to be able to continue to wear the number 10, right? Like number 10 for Barcelona, number, number seven on Manchester United, you know, like there's a lot of pressure wearing that number. Right. And so, and it's one of those things where even if you are new to a team, you don't get to ask for the number 10. Number 10 is sort of offered to you. So it's it's kind of one of those things where in hockey, it's more like your jersey's retired if you were that good. Um, otherwise, like, I don't believe anyone ever wore 13 after Sundin wore it with the Leafs. Well, I, think they, I think they treated it like it was retired because they knew it was going to get retired. Yeah, like I think Brian Papineau just didn't issue that number out. He was kind of like, no. Fun fact, there are no number 69s in the NHL last year, and I think we need to change that. Nice. <laughs> Jared, Jared Allen wore it in the NFL. He was like a, an all-pro uh, pass rusher. He was incredible, and he wore number 69 like for fun. I'm like, come on, can we get a bit of personality in this league? I know that that's not allowed, and the one player who has personality has been traded by his team for like negative value twice now, but come on, come on. I want some personality in this league. Well, you have personality. What is with the kale chips, Ian? Ian They're good! Ian, so let's preface this. Andrew Berkshire was, I I guess, bored and put out a tweet and it was basically like, send me your most controversial food opinion. Travis Yost need not apply because I think we all know, like, those food opinions are just, like, on a different planet. But yeah, I think Andrew Berkshire was writing. Andrew Berkshire was a Saturday night. He was working. He's like, I need something to help get me through this night. Give me your worst food take. And yeah, like, Travis Yost, please don't. (laughs) And so Ian goes, kale chips are the best chip. I replied, this is a podcast topic. And Andrew replies, just punch him instead. What is with the kale chip thing? Like, Okay, let me first say that I'm not, like, some kind of, like, vegan or anything. I'm not some kind of, like, I don't know, pretentious hipster who just likes having weird food opinions, but... I tried kale chips a few years ago. One of my uh, friend's roommates was making them. And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll try one of those. Like, sure, why not? I want to be nice. And it was like the best thing I've ever had. And I'm like, oh my God, I love this. It's kale with a bit of olive oil on it. And then you just sprinkle a bit of salt on top, put it in the oven. And they're so good. And apparently they're like crazy healthy. I'm not a big kale person. That's literally the only time I, I'll eat kale is when it's the kale chips. But I outright refuse to eat kale. They're so good. Okay, here's the thing. Other than kale chips, my favorite are like, I don't know, uh, Ruffles All Dressed. Oh, great um, chip. They don't yeah. have that in the States. I, I like chip. Ruffles, sour cream and onion. I like sun chips. I like the orange, orange sun chips. Oh, I don't like sun chips. But yeah, okay, so the kale chip thing, like, here's the thing with kale. You either love it or you hate it. And I've never... Apparently, I love it. I did, I've did. i never had kale all my life until a few years ago. No, but I've never heard of someone who 
won't eat like raw kale so like a kale salad my sister eats that and she's like do you want some I'm like no I don't want your bird food but then you like kale chips so that's like super interesting because I've never met or heard of anyone that doesn't eat raw kale but loves kale chips to the point where he thinks it's the best damn chip and that's just false it's really good um do you put ketchup on your steak <laughs> no I don't okay my good. brother that's my brother different. put ketchup in his peanut butter toast my brother put well, ketchup uh, on his... Oh, my God. Kraft Dinner's a normal thing, apparently, I think. That's um, normal. Peanut he put ketchup, butter? Ketchup on his spaghetti. Um, he used to put, Ian! He, he used to put ketchup on his pizza. My brother was a freak. Ketchup and pepper on everything. And, I, and we were like, dude, there's something wrong with you, so... I mean, my brother had a hockey teammate who put ketchup in his milk, and I oh! almost threw up at the table. I was like, nope. All right, what was your hottest food take? Because all you did was make fun of me, but you have to have a hot food take that you know people are going to think is crazy. Um, I'm pretty bland, other than the fact that, like, I mayo actually makes me throw up. Like, if I eat mayo, I vomit. Oh, but come on, some people don't like mayo. You need, like, a really hot take. That was the goal. I'm like, okay, let me think. Oh, yeah, most people don't like kale. Like, I think kale chips are amazing. So that was going to be my bold take. I don't know. Like, name some stuff and I'll be like, yes or no. Do you have some, like, weird German thing? Um. Oh, yeah. Okay, this might be weird. Uh, The best kind of potatoes, except for McDonald's french fries, because I eat McDonald's, like, five times a week, Um, is boiled potatoes with just, like, salt. You just cook it in salt water. You're the most boring white person on the planet. You deserve a life in hockey. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, though, like when I went, so I'll tell you, like when I went to Germany, I went and like we have like a farm where we have our own like cows and pigs and everything. So like everything's organic and we grow our own vegetables. We have like wh- white asparagus is the best asparagus. Um, and they asked her like, oh, like, what do you want for lunch? Or like, what do you want for dinner? I'm like, boiled potatoes. Like, that's it. I just, just give me boiled potatoes because they have a different kind of potato over there that because it's because of our soil over here that we we can't have. So you can only have it when I go over there. So I, I guess my hottest food take is that potatoes on this side of the earth suck. Wow. Wow. Yet you eat McDonald's French fries five times a week. Well, those aren't like flavored potatoes. Those are deep fried to hell, but they're so good. Maybe you shouldn't be eating McDonald's fries five times a week. I I'm not a nutritionist or anything. I'm just I'm just throwing that out there. The best is like I haven't. I'm like mom. Like my stomach kind of hurts. Like I can't eat. And she's like, well, then maybe because you eat McDonald's five times a week. Maybe you should be eating kale chips, Rachel. Yeah, the odds of that. I mean, my sister like the fucking she eats so healthy. It's like we get like Hello Fresh. Like my mom orders like Hello Fresh or whatever. And so, like, that, like, then I'll eat healthy. But, like, my sister's out here making, like, corn salad or something. And I'm like, what are you, like, what is that over there? Or she made the smoothie, Ian. It was, like, the color of a pencil. And she's like, try it. I'm like, you couldn't pay me to try that. Well, hold like, on, orange. No like, way. what if there was, like, pineapple in there? What if there was, like, mango no, 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 was, in there? Like, I'm talking about, like, lead. Like, it was great. Oh, oh. I, I was picking, like, a number two pencil. Like, a, a, No, no, no. I'm talking about, like pencil colors and like lead color oh could you, maybe would, there are like blueberries in there maybe i'm trying to think what would make it go that color like kale she had she had like veggie green powder in there kale spinach some i fruit i'm assuming blueberries and blackberries might make it turn that that color but i i smelt it and i was like absolutely not plug your nose down the hatch man it's good for your system 
That's what I did with protein shakes back in the day when I was actually in shape. I don't know about the whole kale chip thing. I feel like there are better chips, but I could appreciate that you like them. I personally, I'm with Mike Stevens. Ketchup chips are the bomb. Oh, those are good. Those are really good. I love Lay's. Lay's ketchup chips. Yeah. So when I was living in New Jersey, my dad and brother like came down for Easter and my dad goes, okay, like, do you want me to bring anything? I'm like, yeah, I would like a suitcase full of ketchup chips. Man showed up with 15 bags of ketchup chips. That's impressive. For me. And like, I gave like a couple to like people in New Jersey who had never tried them. And my best friend in New Jersey page, she was like, oh my God, these are so good. And every morning for breakfast, we would eat ketchup chips. Okay, see, I feel like you eat ketchup chips for breakfast, McDonald's fries five times a week. I feel like I'm a bit concerned for you. Why? Well, I, I eat fruit, like, every day, and vegetables. I'm, like, my snacks are fruits and vegetables, but I just don't eat the healthiest, like, unless I'm in Germany, then I eat, like, royalty, but I'm not in Germany all that often, That, that sounds like a problem. So. But then again, I don't know who I am to tell you about healthy life's cho- lifestyle choices, because I've been <laughs> sick for the last couple of weeks. I sound like I'm dying, so clearly the kale chips aren't helping. <laughs> yeah, Ian, come on. And I just take, like, a bunch of vitamins, so... Right. Maybe that's my thing is like I eat like garbage, but vitamins are the way to go. Uh, genius. You're just getting all those supplements you need. All right. We should get out of here. Um, what are we going to be talking about next time, Rachel? Um, we'll talk about like free agency, who signed where, because if you think that during interview weeks, they're not discussing terms, even though they're not supposed to be, they're totally discussing terms, which is why at 12.03, Panarin, Bobrovsky, and whomever else Tyler Myers will probably be signed. It's like, man, they came to a quick agreement on those, like the, the the details of the no trade clause and like the bonus structure. Like, wow, man, they really like they they hashed that out real quick. We'll probably <laughs> break down a bunch of the big contracts. I would think. What do we think? Good, bad, ugly, surprises. Yeah, we'll do that. Sounds great to me. All right, we'll talk next week, Rachel. Hopefully, my voice doesn't sound as ridiculous next week, but. I don't know, I'm just, I'm trying to get on your level. I'm trying to get a bit deeper and, like, you know, get that, that podcast voice in. <laughs> get in, get on the, the Batman level. Yeah, I'm not German enough to have that deep voice, so I'm, I'm trying to get sick and see if that'll help. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, well, you take care of that voice and uh, talk next week, everyone. Alright, take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.